This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we're talking about Leland Stanford. Yeah, that's Stanford. And we're not just talking about him because it's big game week between Stanford and Cal. We're talking about the scandalous side of Leland Stanford, where he was sort of a forerunner of the Silicon Valley disruptors of today. Stanford was an OG disruptor. He was a robber baron and a racist and a man who used his wealth to influence federal officials. At the same time, he was also former governor of California and a U.S. senator. Breaking it down for us is my buddy Roland DeWolk, an award-winning Bay Area investigative reporter and author of the new book, American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford. And here's my conversation with my friend Roland DeWolk. Roland DeWolk, welcome to It's All Political. My fellow Oaklander, welcome to San Francisco, the city of St. Francis. In a beautiful place it is. <laughs> so I know it's a, it's a big game here this week, which of course neither of us will be paying attention to this uh, to the big game with, between two mediocre football teams. But uh, why should we care about Leland Stanford now? What What is his relevance to the way Silicon Valley is now, the robber barons of today? Why, why should we care about him now? Without a Leland Stanford, you may well not have had a Silicon Valley. Without a Leland Stanford, you certainly would not have a Stanford University. Without a Stanford University, you would not have tech as we have it today. This occurred in one place and one place only, a confluence of historic events that begin and are critical to the life of Leland Stanford. And uh, one thing that I, now I am not a student of California history. I didn't grow up here. Uh, I didn't have to study the, even the basics uh, in fourth, was it fourth grade? Was, was in the fourth grade. But yeah. you know, we learned a lot about Pittsburgh, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. The Steelers. <laughs> well, that was the important history. Tri River, <laughs> Joe Montana, so yeah. on and so forth. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but um, so I didn't know that uh, anything about Stanford really, other than he was a robber baron, et cetera, et cetera. And. What I learned from your book, of many things I learned in your book, was that he wasn't really that bright of a guy. And I will read from this passage. This is one of my favorite passages in the book. There, this is a young Leland Stanford. This is, there are a few indications that he was either terribly hardworking or terrifically bright. Rather, he could be regarded as sometimes scheming, chronic, a sometimes scheming chronic school dropout who was experiencing a tepid political awakening. The pressing question at hand was how the young man would make a living. This is Stanford about uh, 21 Correct years old. So how does, how does that guy, what, how does this guy with that type of uh, uh, profile develop into the person that he became? Well, Joe, you may remember being that age and perhaps not everybody thought you would become a great Chronicle reporter and a well-known West Coast political correspondent. 
Leland Stanford certainly as a young man could be best described as feckless, but he made a transition in his life, perhaps because invention being uh, the mother of necessity or something like that, and because he found himself in circumstances because he had no way where to turn. He also had opportunities later on that gave him a chance to exercise his great capabilities, which were not recognized. They were not presentable when he was very young, and they were extraordinary circumstances indeed, and he surmounted those young failures uh, in a way that you rarely see in an American life. So he comes to California with his help. Of his, his brothers were already out here. Uh, he opens up a shop in San Francisco or in uh, Sacramento. It's what is it? What's he selling? It's like the a, brothers opened up Stanford Brothers, uh, a pretty big successful, the big name on the front down along the river where they sold dry goods and cigars and liquor. Of course, this is the, this is the gold rush era. So they were not miners. They were catering to the miners. The brothers came out in 49, but quickly found, as so many other smarter people, that you got uh, more dependable money behind a store counter and you had a nice uh, roof over your head and a strong door as opposed to living out in the wild and grubbing for gold in the dirt. So uh, it's while he's there, he hooks up with uh, three other guys whose names will be, uh, even if you don't know uh, California history, you know these names because they're on buildings and streets all over the place. Uh, Collis Huntington, Mark Hopkins, and Charles Crocker. Tell us about these guys who became known as the Big Four. Crocker was selling carpets and shoes uh, around the corner from Stanford Brothers. More importantly, perhaps, right next door was a hardware store, Huntington Hopkins, and they were selling uh, all kinds of implements for the gold uh, rush guys as well. Now, the three of them had some distinct roles. Crocker was a self-described bull of a man, about 5'10", maybe 240, sometimes 260, a guy who could really like push guys to their limits. Then you had Hopkins, more of an ascetic, maybe 5'10", 160, said to be a vegetarian, very quiet, attentive to bookkeeping. And finally, uh, oftentimes regards the star of the show, I think sometimes inappropriately, Collis Huntington, who was maybe six feet, 180 pounds of pure muscle and regarded in the terms of his days as a sharp trader. The three of them saw this guy, Leland Stanford, move into his brother's store next door and kind of uh, stroked their long beards and said, hmm, he might be a very, in, very interesting asset to our aspirations and so brought him into the quartet. What did, what did they see in Stanford? Uh, this guy who was, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, didn't seem that remarkable in his earlier days. What did they see in him? What they saw was a guy who looked like a great candidate. He was, again, I'll describe him for you since we're uh, not in a visual medium here in a podcast. <laughs> we're in the theater of the mind. We we're in the say. theater of the mind. And so let me set the stage just a little bit more. Here's a guy's 5'11", uh, probably 190, a close crop beard, uh, a rather stern countenance. Didn't say much because he didn't have a lot to say, but clearly a guy who kind Kind of looked like he could be in charge of stuff. And he it was a brand. Stanford Brothers was a big store. Everybody knew what it was. So here was a guy who ostensibly was a successful businessman, although he really had nothing to do with the business. His brothers had absolutely put it together and he just inherited it when they went off to bigger and better things. Well, maybe not bigger, but other things. Yeah. And they knew that he had political aspirations. He had run for district attorney back in Wisconsin 
where he was crushed and came out to California because everything failed for him back there. And they needed a guy that they could put together as a front man, a tool, if you will, as uh, somebody in political power for the plans that they had uh, been cooking up. And the the one of his earlier and help me off with the chronology here, but they were kind of the they were in the no name party then, correct? They were they were sort of uh, and and for those who uh, don't know the no name party, these are nativists. We, we they might they might look very familiar today. Oh. <laughs> the master of the understatement. Yeah. Yes, they called themselves at first the American Party, but uh, they were informally called the no name because they was a secret organization at first, and you weren't supposed to tell anybody who you were and what you were aligned with. But nativist is absolutely what the academic term was. It meant that it was going to be northern. Uh, European ancestry, uh, people who were not Catholic, people who were uh, very much of a British or maybe German Protestant stock. And anything besides that was not considered American, even if, for example, your ancestors had been here for 12,000 years. And so what, so they, and then he gradually became a part of the fledgling uh, Republican Party here in California. But Stanford is one of the many things we didn't know. He ran for office like six times. Five correct? times. Five, five times. times. Um, so finally, this he becomes uh, the standard bearer of the Republican Party here in, in uh, California. But before we go into this politics, I want to talk a little bit about how these guys became uh, hooked up with the railroad industry here. How did the big four uh, become the... Uh, railroad magnets that they are today. Remember, we're talking about the Civil War era. So people are thinking that the United States is anything but united today. Good argument. Uh, the Civil War kind of makes that look uh, uh, like penny, uh, a penny-ante game. It's the, nothing to do with it. So we also have a new Republican president of the United States, a tall guy, and a guy I like to tell stories, a one-term congressman from Illinois named... Uh, Lincoln, I Lincoln, believe. Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln. I, I always have to look at my $5 yes. bill to kind of get back to that. And Lincoln had been a railroad attorney. That's how he had had some commercial success. They were all very much in favor of a transcontinental railroad to bind this torn nation together. Remember, there was also a Mormon insurrection in Utah that they were really concerned about, that there was going to be more separatists. The gold coming into the country and to the world was unbelievable amounts. They wanted to tie that to the country, so on and so forth. So uh, to finance this transcontinental railroad, though, was probably well beyond the means of the venture capitalists of their day. The federal government, for the first time, was going to finance a private enterprise. The big four knew this, and they needed somebody in political power to kind of help them uh, be able to get as much taxpayer money as they could for their private enterprise. So that's where Leland Stanford comes in. And they were able to, to convince the federal government to subsidize uh, it by, by the mile. And, and talk a little bit about how they did that. Well, first I want to read uh, the fact that these guys know nothing about the railroad industry. <laughs> uh, when you write... They laid hands on technology they did not understand, initiated sweeping changes, and saw these changes often take on purposes they did not intend. So I think we're quoting, the, uh, quoting yes, I'm quoting Richard White, yes, a wonderful and very important historian at Stanford University who's very critical of the railroad in a great book called Railroaded, if anybody wants to chase that. But, but, it's yes. not, but I, I was thinking the, the parallels to the Facebook of today, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, it says, well, I didn't, you know, I don't, I didn't mean for it to get this big. 
and it, it has exploded. So anyways. The parallels go on and on and yeah. on and on. Yes, there, we could draw many of them, and they're certainly appropriate. Okay. But yes, they knew nothing about it. They were four shopkeepers. But there was legislation in Congress, which they well knew about, to finance this thing. There was an argument about how it was going to be built, a north-south split on that. And they knew that uh, with the kind of prosperity would not only bring to California, that well, they imagined that it would, but they certainly could imagine the kind of prosperity it was going to bring to anybody who's in charge of it. They happened to stumble upon a young guy named Theodore Judah. Uh, anybody who's ridden the end Judah out on the sunset will recognize the name, but Theodore <laughs> Judah was a young, and this is very parallel to the valley today as well, a naive young engineer, brilliant, got great ideas, but is completely um, uh, ignorant of the way that uh, the, the, the business works and, and how uh, he's got to keep his head above water. But he knew a good deal about politics in Washington, D.C. So he came out to California for somebody else, found the route across the Sierra Nevada, presented this to the big four, asking them to join him in trying to get some government money. He went back to D.C. and found himself quickly appointed as the staff person to the House Committee on Railroads and the staff person to the Senate Committee on Railroads and consequently wrote the law that the contract that gave this franchise to the big four. It was immediately sent to President Lincoln, who quickly signed it. The war was on. They needed to get this railroad going. He comes back triumphant. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but he is uh, an advocate, a lobbyist or whatever you want to call, and he's then becomes the staffer inside writing the legislation that and would benefit the big four Robert Barons. And he is a director of the railroad and its chief engineer. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, man, not a lot of oversight in those days. <laughs> okay, uh, not as much as well, maybe about the same as today. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, so there was there was also something. There was some money changing hands, correct? A little bit, a little bit. Talk a little bit about how they was they were able to make friends in Washington. You're making friends in Washington by giving stock options, for example, to the legislature, saying, "Look, if you want to be able to." Uh, cash in on this cow, what you need to do is vote this way and we'll just throw some stock options your way. And uh, there were no rules and regulations to that effect. There was no uh, word like transparency, for goodness sake. People didn't talk about those sorts of things. <laughs> and if that didn't work, they just gave them cash outlays. And if that didn't work, they would give them contracts with the steel rails. If that didn't work, they would do anything else that needed to be done. And Stanford in particular was very good at this here in California. He went to the, he was elected governor after uh, five elections uh, for in California, unsuccessful, getting himself up there, split the, the ticket between the Whigs, the know-nothings, or among the, the know-nothings, the Whigs and the Democrats, came up with short of a majority of votes, but enough to get him a governor. And then he went to the state legislature and said, I need even more money. Uh, the federal government gave us some, but we need even more. And he used a word of a Republican governor who followed him very shortly afterwards, bullied the legislature into more tax money. Then he went to the counties and did the same thing. Then he went to the cities and he did the same thing. And meanwhile, they were taking all the money and they were laundering it through a series of dummy companies so they could put that taxpayer money back into their pockets and not reinvest it in the railroad. They're basically paying themselves uh, to, to, when, when you say laundering money. 
Very much so. Huge sums of money. And this is most evident in the way that Leland Stanford was spending it. Big mansion in, in Sacramento, then a very big mansion in San Francisco atop what we call Knob Hill today. He was uh, the second house up there. Then he bought uh, a series of parcels of land up in Northern California, a little bit north of Chico, which became the biggest vineyard in the world. There's some remains up there. It's called Vina. And then finally... Wait, wait, and. Crappy wine, as, as you report. Undrinkable was yeah. the uh, was the critique at the time, <laughs> and then the finally, wine spectator of its day. The wine spectator of its day, but um, he had a he had a cure for that. Then he turned it into medicinal brandy, but that's another long story. Yes. <laughs> anyway, then finally he decided he needed, <clears throat> pardon me, he needed a uh, country estate. And as we all know, San Francisco tends to be a little bit cold and windy and overcast and so on and so forth. But if you go 30 miles south down the peninsula, there's this big spread of land, 8,000 acres he put together and named it after this rather tall, scraggly redwood tree named Palo Alto. Palo Alto. You're listening to my conversation with Roland DeWolf, author of American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And here's more of my conversation with Roland DeWolf. I want to uh, go back and because we, we still have to build the railroad. And uh, to build the railroad, it's a very difficult engineering feat uh, and, 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 and labor feat. Um, initially, he wanted to have, um, you know, white people building the, the railroad, Irish uh, folks. They prove, as you, as you write here, to be sort of an un, un, not dependable. He didn't want uh, Chinese folks to build it, but ultimately... He did. First of all, what were his feelings about uh, why, why about Chinese labor? He was an out and out racist. If you look at his inaugural address when he became governor, which you will see on page sixty nine, Mr. Garofoli, yes. he just calls them the dregs of humanity and wants to keep them out of California. He feels the same way about pretty much anybody who is not uh, white and Protestant. He is anti slavery. But he's anti-slavery in the sense that the early Republican Party was. He doesn't want it expanded. And eventually he will go along with seeing it abolished. But it was not because he thought it was immoral. They thought that slavery denigrated the labor of the white man. So this is pretty much where his head was at. And it stayed that way throughout his career. Unfortunately, to build that railroad needed an enormous number of, uh, of human beings to actually use the picks and the shovels and so on and so forth. And they could not get enough white guys to work that hard. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you guys. I, <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast. We'll save that for another podcast. And uh, uh, at the same time, we had people from around the world coming out out here for the gold rush. It was the biggest migration in uh, Western migration in history. And many of those people came from China, particularly the southern province of Canton, we call Canton now. And they were looking for work. They reluctantly started putting little crews of Chinese, and they did 
fantastic stuff. They didn't run off to the saloons. They didn't run off to the latest gold strike. They didn't get uh, into trouble, so on and so forth. These were guys who just worked enormously hard. They did have maybe a little pipe of opium at the end of the day. Once Not that there's anything wrong with that. That, that. That's what I've read. Of course, yes, I've, yes, I've yes, never right. been to China, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, at the end of the day, the railroad was built by anywhere from 10 to 12, and there have been some estimates, once it might be able to be backed up to 20,000 Chinese who are really, truly the John Henrys of the Transcontinental Railroad. And they, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but you wrote that they, they finish ahead of schedule, correct? They finish well ahead of schedule. Um, okay, let's, so he, meanwhile, let's go back to the, uh, so Stanford has been governor of California. He then became a senator. United States Senator from California, and appointed those, by the state legislature. Yeah, in those days, exactly. In those days, they're, the senators are appointed. Um, they're not uh, elected. So he, um, so let's go leap down to where he, um, where he left off, where he uh, starts, he acquires this land in Palo Alto. What is his vision for that area then? And how did, how did Stanford University evolve out of that? Well, he called it his stock farm. He tried to keep a kind of a little modest little name to it. But this stock farm was something like 8,800 uh, acres. He had a miniature railroad built for his son, which is an important factor I should quickly touch on. They tried to have a kid for 18 years. Suddenly, uh, finally, uh, Leland Stanford Jr. was born and a, a wonderful kid, so on and so forth. You can imagine the joy that must have brought to them after 18 years of marriage. And he uh, had a mansion on the place. Of course, he had 150 people working full-time staff hundreds of horses that he kept, uh, mostly trotting horses, which was sort of the rich man's thing of the day. And uh, that was all that he saw for the Palo Alto Ranch, uh, the stock farm, as he liked to call it, at the beginning. But um, they took off on one of these grand tours of Europe, because that's what rich guys did back in those days. And young Leland was to enter Harvard when he turned 16, which was not uncommon in the late 19th century. But on this last grand tour, they visited Istanbul, today's uh, or yesterday's uh, Constantinople, I should say. And it was there he probably contacted Typhus. He died in a Florence hotel shortly afterwards. This huge heartbreak for them is what led them to say, we're going to build a university and we're going to name it Leland Stanford Junior University and we're going to put it on the Palo Alto stock farm. And that's uh, in the book, that's really one of the moments, the few moments of vulnerability for Leland Sr. Uh, he was he was emotionally crushed by this. His wife was Jenny was emotionally crushed by this. Um, and and uh, it really was never the same after that. Is that accurate? Or, or? Absolutely. No, that was devastating as you can well imagine. There's no way to get around that. Uh, now, this is a guy who's not in great health already. He is uh, seriously overweight. He's all, all stressed out. The public has turned against him. The government has turned against him. And he's starting to say very vociferously and very often that we shouldn't even have to pay back the loan that we got from the federal government. In fact, the federal government should be thanking us because we did this magnificent work of the Transcontinental Railroad. But we're talking about in today's dollars, billions and billions of dollars that were owed back to the taxpayers. And the federal government was really getting very nervous whether they were going to get it back. The state had failed in, in its attempt to try to regulate the railroad. So the federal government stepped in and began a year-long investigation about what happened to the money. And this is the there are many little scandals that take place, many not so little scandals that took place as well. But this is the primary scandal, the biggest one, the most incredible one that takes place is during this investigation. They're not able to get them because a lot of records were destroyed, lost. 
claimed to be lost, correct? Yeah, it's worse why, than that. They said, why were they, they not able to, to nail him? They asked him, where are the books? And he said, what books? Well, uh, the books for the railroad, the, the millions and millions and millions of dollars that we fronted, your seed money, you know? And he says, well, I don't think I've ever even seen the books. Are we the president of the company, aren't you, uh, Senator Stanford? And he says, uh, oh, I, I don't do little things like look at the books. Well, that's great, but we need to see the books. Where the heck are the books? Oh, the books. Oh, oh, apparently, apparently they've been destroyed. Excuse me? They've been destroyed? Who destroyed them? I don't really know. Well, let's bring in some of your deputies. Uh, no, we don't know uh, where the books are. Okay, uh, will you answer these other questions? Oh, I'd love to, but on advice of counsel, I can't answer that question. <laughs> well, what about this? I don't remember that. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're not going to even testify before a congressional committee. Of course, that can never happen again. Yeah. But that's what happened then. And then finally, they took Stanford to court to a very high federal court, just below the Supreme Court level. It's been changed a little bit in the structures since that time. But it was a three-panel federal court, and two of the judges on this three-panel court were there directly because of Leland Stanford. And, of course, they struck down any kind of action against somebody who got off scot-free. And so, and he was also, uh, he, the, the, not only did he not have the records, uh, you, one of his colleagues was at Huntington you said he, he's here's a guy who could remember what he had for lunch, the price of what he had for lunch 50 years ago. And he also says, I don't, I don't know. Here's I, Huntington, who uh, not only had an incredible memory and a, and a, and a well-deserved reputation for being that sharp trader. Here's a guy who suddenly says, well, I don't know anything about the books. I don't never really looked at them. They said, well, where are the receipts for all your expenses? And he says, well, I don't have them. My accountant asked, where's your accountant? He's dead. Who's the guy replaced them? He's dead. So when you were buying and trading steel and locomotive uh, engines and so on and so forth, you never looked at the receipts? Oh, no. I very careful about that kind of thing. But when it came to the federal money, he was completely shut down. They caught him red-handed. So um, now the Stanford uh, uh, dies and, uh, you know, the scandals don't stop there. Um, his wife was left holding the bag, essentially, with the tons of debt. Um, and the, and then how did, how did she get out of that? Well, Leland, <clears throat> pardon me, Leland not only had extracted a ton of money out of the company. So these laundry, uh, laundromat companies, if you will. But he had also borrowed huge sums of money for this very ostentatious style of life that he had been enjoying all that time. And when he Tif died, Tiffany jewelry for the wife. Oh, the jewelry uh, uh, yeah. was unbelievable. Yeah. She had the jewels of the Empress Josephine. Napoleon's and, wife. Napoleon's first wife, yes. I think he went through a couple of them, right? Yeah, and uh, Isabella II and so on and so forth. It's quite a, quite a show. You can't get that stuff on eBay. You could probably, Joe. Maybe now. Uh, maybe I not on a Chronicle reporter's salary. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Nevertheless, Leland Stanford was able to do so and uh, be, be, bedazzle his wife with these wonderful jewels. But when he died, it turned out that the estate was just on the brink of bankruptcy and the federal government wanted its money back. They took the, her and the estate all the way to the United States Supreme Court. But lucky for Jenny and the estate, she was not only good friends with the president of the United States at the time because Leland had been a, a senator and he kind of leaned on his attorney general, go light on her. He, they had friends on the Supreme Court as well. This is a friend who literally would be hanging out and partying at the Stanford house is that field or was absolutely Stephen yeah. field a very yeah. important uh, jurist i mean one of the more influential guys in the history of the supreme court but yeah he would party with them all the time and uh they ha 
had uh, big dinners together during the lawsuit and so on and so forth. Uh, so anyway, she escaped that. Now she's free and clear. She has saved the university, which, as I say, uh, was also uh, on the brink of closing. They, she couldn't even pay the heating bill at Stanford University. And remember, this is a place that he had envisioned just as really a trade school, nothing more than that. He, perhaps because of his lack of education, sort of disdained the liberal arts. Oh, who needs to read history? Who needs to read literature, poetry, blah, you know, so on and so forth. What you need to know is how to make widgets. So uh, this place was foundering already, but when she finally wins the case and she finally gets the assets back from the railroad securities, she decides, okay, I've rescued all of this and I'm going to take it easy now. I'm going to do some traveling. She does some traveling. She goes to Hawaii. And uh, what happens there? Well, she decides to go to Hawaii because one evening on Knob Hill, when she's having uh, some uh, water with some medicine in it, she spits it out. They bring it to the lab, and it turns out somebody has put some rat poison in it, uh-uh. that it's strychnine, and somebody it looks like they're trying to kill her, and they don't know why. But they say, Jenny, you got to get out of here while we do some investigation. So they send her off to Honolulu, and she stays at the Moana on Waikiki Beach. This is 1905. So this is an idyllic place, right, at, at an idyllic time. And she has a wonderful day out there. She goes out to the Paliao. Look, she comes back down to the hotel, takes a little walk on the wharf that used to be outside the hotel there, goes back to her room, says goodnight to everybody. And about an hour or two later, she's screaming in the hallway, I've been poisoned. And two hours later, she's dead. Now, there is a very serious medical inquest with some of the best physicians of the time, chemists, uh, forensic pathologists, uh, private investigators. There's a a coroner's jury that that looks at everything, and everybody, everybody unanimously agrees that she has been killed. Somebody's put pharmaceutical strychnine in the water that night, and this causes another problem for Stanford University, which is still pretty much teetering because it didn't have the endowment that everybody thought that it did. And David Starr Jordan, the first, until not so long ago, very revered president of Stanford University, can't afford to have any more scandals at his university. So he immediately takes the ship out, first ship out of San Francisco, goes over to Honolulu, and engages in one of the most successful cover-ups of any murder that you and I as former, well, me as a former reporter and you as still in the daily scrum probably will ever be able to cover in your lifetime. And her murder to this day remains not only unsolved, but we still don't even know what the motive was. So we don't know why someone would want her killed. We don't know why. We have speculation, but we may never know why. So can you make the link between how this and Stanford uh, gets a tax-exempt status, which it enjoys to this day, and which will actually be key, may be key in a upcoming battle uh, 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 ballot measure coming up where uh, there's a question where uh, commercial property may be taxed differently at change to Proposition 13. But how did they make this link for us? Then we have this university in the early 1900s, again, which is still in, in a lot of trouble. They have some academic freedom issues. They have financial issues. They have a sex scandal. This just goes on and on. So there is a young fellow named George Crothers, an early graduate of the place, who's said to look very much like Leland Jr., and he becomes close to, uh, to uh, Jenny and wants to help out. He engineers this most remarkable state constitutional exemption forever 
on all property taxes for Stanford University, which a recent news story pointed out is the single largest landholder in the Silicon Valley. We're talking still 8,000 acres. Now they do pay taxes on stuff like the shopping center, so on and so forth. But when they tried to impose, for example, not so long ago, uh, property taxes on the golf course, the university successfully fought it in court saying it was part of the educational institution. So there are uncounted millions, and I suspect probably at this point, probably in the billions of taxpayer dollars that uh, we're really going to subsidize Stanford University. And of course, since it is a nonprofit, it doesn't pay any income taxes as well. This keeps the university going in a very serious way. But uh, it also made the promise to uh, educate California students for free. The deal was we're going to give you this exemption, but if you are a California boy or girl and you go to Stanford, you'll never have to pay tuition. That all ended in the 1920s. And I think tuition today is it's about 70 grand or something. Yeah, like that. I can't count that. 50, high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I always like asking this to biographers. Uh, how did you feel when you started researching and writing about Stanford and how did you feel about them uh, towards the end? It's funny, you know, I'm, I'm a history graduate uh, from UC Berkeley, and I remember the commencement address there was by a guy named Irving Stone, who was a very popular and popular historian at the time. And we kind of all sort of held our noses up a little because he wasn't a real academic. And the only thing I can remember about his commencement address was when he starts doing uh, a biography, say, of Van Gogh or Jack London, which he did, that he was very suspicious and thought that they were cads. But when he was done, he realized the humanity in them and how much he liked them. Joe, I have to tell you, I just didn't, <laughs> it just never happened with me and Leland Stanford. I do, to be fair, to be fair, I will say I do uh, feel that he had a lot of suppressed humanity. His loyalty to his family was paramount. Yes, one of the scandals is no, there's no sex scandal. He was very loyal to Jenny. And, to the best and of our yes, knowledge, yes. there's no sex scandal. Yeah. He didn't go through three wives. Yeah. Uh, he didn't just boot his family around. But he, uh, not the most likable guy in the world. No. Yes, uh, mean-spirited, or not mean-spirited, but uh, racist, uh, you know, the robber baron. A complete opportunist. He could yeah. change his mores at the drop of a hat if it was going to suit his personal needs. And he did it over and over and over and over again. And his, what you guys in the mass news media these days euphemistically call falsehoods uh, uh, and the rest of us call lies, uh, were a daily feature of his business and political life. Wow. And on that note, <laughs> uh, American Disruptor, The Scandalous Life of Leland Stanford, Roland DeWoke. Thank you so much for being on the Insult. Thank you. And I think you, this is, uh, I think you set a record for most times insulting the host uh, for the, uh, and just ripping on the host. I love, oh, I love that's that. so sad. I, I have a hanky here, Joe. Wanna, wanna, <laughs> <laughs> we might have to hug it out afterwards. Don't probably, touch prob- me. probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Roland for coming in to San Francisco and uh, doing the podcast and ripping on me a little bit. I'd like to thank the king, King Coffin for producing today's podcast. Remember, whether you're a robber baron or just get ripped off by them, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, 
subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.